0: So we are in this, uh, this great, small book in the Old Testament, which is uh, one of the minor prophets. And uh, it is a familiar book to us. And uh, I think as we, as we read this passage, um, I think you probably caught on that there are some, some words that are used repeatedly. Um, the word hurl, did you catch that? You know, God hurled a great wind. Jonah was hurled into the sea. Um, When this is being written, um, it's written with an idea that we will catch things like that, that those things will kind of, you know, be riveted in our thinking as we come to this passage. There's there's a lot that's going on. And um, just to kind of set the stage a little bit, uh, this is a story about a prophet of God who has been asked to go and to speak and preach For God in a city called Nineveh, and the group that he's called to speak to are Assyrian people who are um, not well-liked because of the way they treat those that they conquer. And uh, we'll kind of pause on that introduction, and we'll pick it up in just a little bit. Um, But today, we're looking at a great storm. Now, how many of you like a good storm? I used to live in Michigan, the Midwest, and we would have great storms. And I remember sitting in my home in Ortonville, yes, a place called Ortonville, okay, and it was an old village home that had this big, huge front porch, um, and uh, very deep front porch. And so when, the, when it stormed, we would go out and sit on the porch, and we would watch the, the lightning, we would hear the thunder, we would actually feel the mist from the downpour of rain, And along with that were the smells of um, the storm. And those smells were refreshing smells. They were kind of cool, sweet smells from the trees. Almost as if all the vegetation was just crying out, we're satisfied, we're clean, we're dusted off. Really just a beautiful thing to be in a storm like that. I also remember one time coming home from church... Um, on, a, on a weekday, it was about, I would think about 2 o'clock, and it was dark outside. The storm clouds had come in, and it was incredibly dark. But at the same time, um, the, the sky was was flashing. There was sheet lightning, if you've ever seen that before. It just kind of flashes all across the sky. And then along with the sheet lightning was this fork lightning. And I'm driving down the road, and all of a sudden, lightning, and it's hitting, it's hitting these... Uh, Power lines along the way. And just, I mean, the place is just lighting up, sparks are flying. I keep driving down 400 yards down the way and it hits again, and behind me and over there. But it was pretty common in Michigan to have that kind of a a display of power. And there was something really charged about being in that kind of storm. It was really an amazing experience and quite fun as long as you don't get hit. Um, And there's something also about sleeping in the middle of a storm. You guys ever, you know what I'm talking about? It's like if it's storming outside, it's like it's really easy to sleep. There's something comforting about a good storm to help you sleep. Well, as we look at our passage today, and as we read it, I'm sure you recognize that there is a storm brewing. And it is a storm unlike any probably that you've ever experienced. It's not the kind of storm you go and sit on your porch for. It's not the kind of storm that you drive down the street and you watch the lightning and stuff. No, this is a storm of divine proportions. This is a storm that is breathed out, that is ushered into place by the divine purposes of God. Let's go back to verse 4 and notice what it says. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there, were a, uh, there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. If you recall... Uh, last week in those first three verses, God had given a commission to uh, his prophet Jonah, who's also known as Dove. That was what his name means. And um, if you remember, unlike Amos and Hosea, contemporary prophets whose message to Israel were of warning and of, uh, of judgment, Jonah's message was a message of prosperity to a wicked nation. And we, we looked at that a little bit last week, but Jonah's world was about to change because God gave him a message in verse 2 that said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up, uh, come up before me. But Jonah, in stubborn and complete defiance, gets up and heads out the door of his house in the exact opposite direction of the city of Nineveh. He goes down to a place called Joppa, And he gets on a boat headed for Tarshish, which is polar opposite of the direction where God had called him to go. Now, he wasn't trying to get away from God. He ultimately knew that God was everywhere. He was getting away from his divine appointed responsibility as a prophet. To be in the presence of the Lord, that expression was used to describe a prophet's specific and unique role. Before God, And we talked last week about how God gives us certain responsibilities, and we can run away from those responsibilities. We don't run away from God, but we run away from our responsibilities. And that can happen in a marriage, that can happen with parenting, it can happen by our responsibility with, uh, with some kind of a job situation. But the Assyrians, as I mentioned earlier, were wicked and evil in God's eyes, but they were also uh, viewed among the people as being a totally vile people. And they they were not liked, and certainly Jonah did not want God's favor going to them. So when God commissioned Jonah, and he said specifically, preach, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, we find that in chapter 3 is what he says, Jonah knew that when there was 40 days put out there, there was the possibility for those people actually to be restored to God and to find God's favor, and he wanted none of that. He didn't want to be a part of it. So he stiff-armed God. He rebelled against God. He was defiant in his response. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. It It all just happened so smoothly, didn't it? Down to Tarshish, getting on a boat, having the money to go, he starts down this, this path, so to speak, on this boat, away from where God had called him to go. So Jonah was running away, you might say. Better, he was running from his God-given responsibility as a prophet. But, God, or, but Jonah would soon learn something. And this really is the, the emphasis of the whole book, and in particular of this section. You cannot defy God, the sovereign, or the sovereign God, You cannot defy his purposes. You try it, you will fail. God desires to be accomplished, will be accomplished, whether you like it or not. We're going to find that unfolded in this passage and ultimately in the book. So any attempt by any of God's people to try and defy the sovereign purposes of God is going to be an attempt in uh, futility. It's going to be an attempt in, uh, of foolishness. And ultimately, it will bring further destruction in your life, and further calamity in your life, and also to those people that you love and you care about. So get this, God's purposes are never, ever thwarted or threatened or manipulated by your attempts at running away. Just think about that. God's purposes are never thwarted, never threatened, never manipulated by your attempts at running away. He never sits in heaven pining away saying, "Oh, I just, I just wish that they would do what I'm asking them to do because if they don't, I can't do this. That's not God. God, if he determines to do something, will do it. And he does it in his way, according to his purposes, with his wisdom, but he will do it regardless of whether or not you want it to be done. That's hard for us to get our hands around. That's hard for us to get our heads around that because we don't understand all the ways in which God works. But you cannot defy God and stop him from doing what he desires to do. Any attempt to halt the purposes of God is like Ed Bessard putting on his swimming trunks and going to Niagara Falls and standing before the water saying, Stop! Right, Ed? It's just that anyway, it's that picture that's just kind of all right. It's that stop. No, you can't. You cannot stop God's purposes. He will do what he desires that he is going to do. Jonah thinks he is smart, he thinks he is strong, he thinks that he's somehow manipulated away out of his responsibility, and he also feels the freedom to disagree with God. But what man can outclass, thing, and outmaneuver God? And this reminds me of Psalm 2, just the first part. Listen to this. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cores from us. He who sits in the heavens, what? Laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Man shakes his fist at God. Man tries to stop God's purposes. And God says, You know, go ahead and try, but I'm just going to laugh at you. You think you're doing it, you think you're accomplishing your purposes, but here's the reality I am working through your efforts to accomplish my purposes. And sometimes, because God is sovereign and He determines what happens, right? He works through our sinfulness to accomplish His purposes. He works through our disobedience to accomplish His purposes. So Psalm 2 is a picture of such attempts. So there's two words that really scream out from the text here. In particular, in verse 3. Two words of of extreme defiance. But Jonah, right? Here God says to Jonah, Jonah, go do this. But Jonah says, mm-mm, not doing it. But now you get to turn, you, you go to verse 4, and the three words in the English language that really explain the disciplining hand of God are, but the Lord. <laughs> so Jonah says, I'm doing this. And God says, well, guess what, Jonah? I'm coming after you. I am going to accomplish my purposes. Verse 4, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Now, it's interesting here. It says the Lord hurled a great wind. God's strength and power here, get this, is not so much in the storm, but it's in the wind that causes the storm. Get that? So i mean, just just, just thinking, what is it that God does? He hurls a great wind, and this hurling results in a storm. This word hurl is the same word that is used to describe Saul when he's hurling a javelin at David. So it's it's this hurling of a weapon. Same picture. God is hurling this weapon, so to speak, at his prophet by virtue of, of this wind. And the result of that wind is this storm. Verse 12 calls it a great tempest. Now, it's also worth noting at this point something about how God works. just want you to think through this a little bit. So if God is actually, you know, the result is a storm that actually causes now problems on the deck of this boat, it was all caused by God and Him hurling this, this wind it's helpful for us to note that as God intervenes in our lives, He doesn't always do it directly with us. And oftentimes, He will use secondary resources or, or resources that are kind of far removed, so to speak. You would think they would be unrelated, but the rippling effects of those decisions that God makes in the lives of whatever is taking place around us are there to accomplish His purposes in us. And we always, you know, can't always connect the dots, you know, why is this storm coming? Well, it's because God affected the wind, right? What well, wasn't an earthquake. It was a wind. The point is, God uses secondary resources, fourth resources out there to accomplish his purposes. That's why, listen, we've got to be very, very careful that we don't try and connect the dots where we're not supposed to connect the dots. You know, what is God doing in my life? And you start, you start measuring every little detail as, as part of God's providential plan. And it's like, you know, you can get carried away and continue with things that may not truly be what they appear to be. Just know that God is God. He knows you. He loves you. He cares about you. And he's working his plan. All right? You don't have to connect all the dots because God is a great God and he's a good God. He knows what he's doing. Now, listen to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 30 and verses 23 and 24. I don't think I have this on the, uh, on the, I don't. Okay. So Jeremiah chapter 30. Turn there if you would, please. If you know where Jeremiah is, it's a major prophet. If you're there in Jonah, you're going to work backwards in your Bible. Um, the book of Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 23 and 24. And I just want you to listen how God speaks through Jeremiah to the audience that is there, it's very, very similar language here. Jeremiah 30, verses 23 and 24. Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst open the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. Just reinforcing here the fact that God is now manipulating nature to accomplish his purposes. And he's not going to stop until his purposes are accomplished, right? And the same, friends, is true in the life of Jonah, and the same is true for us. Now, it may not be quite as dramatic. Like I said, you may not necessarily be able to connect all the dots, but God is at work in all of our lives. You step back and you just think about how in the world you know what? What kind of management system does he have to carry all those details out? All right, we got a couple of people that've been project managers here, and you know they can order some things out. Can you imagine how many there would need to be? I mean, are, are is the angelic host? Are they all just project managers accomplishing God's purposes? I mean, is that what's going on? God, in His sovereignty, has a grasp of all of those details, and they're. All working together to accomplish His purposes. It's staggering, it's amazing, but it's what God says He does, and we see it time and time and time and time again through the pages of His Word, revealing that it is true. He is who He says He is. Now, the point for us then is this, that God will do all that He purposes to do, you can count on it, even and especially when you're running from Him. The big question for us this morning is this, How will we respond to God's pursuit of us when we have begun to run away from our God given responsibilities? Now just pause and think about that. What are my responsibilities? I'm a husband, I'm a wife, I'm a father, I'm a mother, um, I'm a teacher, I'm a banker, um, I'm a construction person, I I own apartments, I I work at a high tech company, um, I'm retired. Um, I'm dating. Uh, You just fill in the gap. You all have responsibilities that are God-given responsibilities. And it's possible for all of us to say, God, I don't want you in that responsibility. I want to do this my way. And I'm going to run from what you're calling me to be and do in that responsibility. And God is coming to us and, and teaching us through this story to listen to him and to, to, to allow him to have that place of ownership of that responsibility. And he's, he's calling us back to that place. Now husbands, listen. When God says, lead your wife, what does he expect? Lead your wife. When he says love her, what does he expect? Love her. When he says learn her, you say, no, see it's all over there. Can't do that. No, you are commanded to do that. And wives, God calls you to submit. Calls you to respect. Now, if this, those are new words to you. There's, there's some learning that needs to take place there. But when your husband leads, when he's doing those things, submitting to him and submitting to Christ, and, and your husband is going to be natural. It's going to flow together. But you can say, you know, I don't want that. I'm going to do it my way. And if that's your attitude, husband or wife, then you're running from your God-given responsibility. You know, how do you parent? Do you just kind of stand off and let them do whatever they want? Or are you engaged in what they're doing and helping them through and, and nurturing them and disciplining and training them in the things of God? You can shirk your responsibilities. So it, there's so many different ways that God has given us responsibilities and we can just say, I'm going to do it my own way or I can do it God's way. God wants us to listen to him to be humble, and to stop running from him. But oftentimes we attempt to hide. And that's simply a way to say, God, I don't want to hear you. I'm going to substitute you with something else that seems good. Sometimes we explain it away. Sometimes we, we go with other people who are also you know, believers, and they will explain things away, and we find, we find satisfaction because other people are thinking the same thing as us. And God is saying, no, 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 listen to me. Follow my will. Well, in this passage, we have before us two responses. One from Jonah, and then one, might say, from the sailors. For the sailors, sailors, it's a response of fear. You see through this passage, they were afraid, they were afraid, they were afraid. For Jonah, it was stubborn defiance. I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it. For the sailors, their fear, however, ascended, get this, in comprehension. In other words, they begin with a fear that they don't quite understand. But slowly in this story, they begin to realize the source of their fear. For Jonah, though, he has already determined, I'm not going to follow God's purposes. And rather ascending, he is now descending. And the story shows him descending further and further away. It's It's really a story of contrast here. It's a story that just reveals two completely different attitudes to God's work and to God's um, uh, interruption of their lives. But for our purposes this morning, we're going to look at the story through the lens of the sailors. We're going to use their experience as the peg, so to speak, that we're going to hang things on. Okay? So we're going to jump in then at verse five. Verse five, and I'm calling this now Fearing the Storm. Fearing the storm. right? And um, in verse 5, it says this. The mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. So the condition of their hearts is exposed by the storm. What's the condition of their hearts? They're afraid. All right? But this was such a bad storm and such an unusual storm that we find them crying out to their gods. Now, there's a couple of things that we need to note here to get the picture. These are sailors. These aren't just you know a you know, bunch of us getting on a boat and trying to get across the water. These are, are men who understood what it meant to go sailing. All right? They're mariners. Likely, they were Phoenicians. If you remember in your history, the Phoenicians were known for their strength on the water. And ultimately, they, they did a lot of trading, a lot of... Uh, a lot of goods were passed through all the different uh, water areas there in that, in that Middle Eastern um, world. And they were known for that. It was also very likely that on ship were not just Phoenicians, but people from other uh, countries and other nationalities too. So it may have been pretty eclectic. And it certainly seems the case because we're told here that they're all crying out to various gods, right? They're each crying out to their own gods. So there's some indication here that, that this isn't just kind of a one... Um, or, or maybe two or three gods of a certain country, um, there's actually multiple gods that are being pursued here. Okay? Now, understand, though, that in that economy of things, gods by different countries, I'm using the word gods here in the little g, right, um, were viewed as gods over either territories or, um, or objects um, or sometimes elements. So it could be the god of, uh, you know, of the Mediterranean. It could be the god of the sea. It could be the god of the air. It could be... So there's all sorts of different gods depending on your religious system, okay? So here they are, and they're all just working together, crying out to their god, hoping that they'll hit the jackpot and get the right one, right? And he'll, he'll calm the sea, all right? And... Um, you know, it's really quite a, quite a picture. Just imagine how many crew members there probably were. Let's just assume there were 40. There's 40 guys bouncing around, crying out to their various gods. So each one's crying out to various gods. So they're just, they're just, you know, going through the list of all the different gods, crying out, crying out, crying out, crying out. Someone has said this is one of the best pictures in the Bible of the World Council of Churches. Or you might even say of the United Nations. All right? All trying to cry out and, and try you to, to do all they can to solve this whole problem of crisis. And here we, have, here we have them not only crying out to God, or their gods, but they're also throwing the cargo overboard. They're hurling it overboard. There's that word again. Why would they do that? The cargo was their what? It was their Possession. It was their income. It was their, it was their, you know, their livelihood. And they're literally getting to the place where they're saying to themselves, you know what, this is not about our livelihood anymore. This is about our lives. This is how bad it is. Let's throw this stuff overboard because if we don't, we're going to die. So, I mean, they're, they're in, a, in, a, in a desperate panic, and they are they're all doing everything they know how to do to, um, to lighten the load and to call out to their gods. So, I mean, they're just... In their own humanity, in their own frame of reference and worldview, they're doing everything they can. Now, hear this. We have here a window into the activity and the behavior of one ship during the storm. Now, would you think that likely there were other ships somewhere nearby? And we're not told. But it would it would make sense that if there's this kind of a storm that there are other ships that likely were affected too. And, and the simple application here is this: that when you choose to sin, when you choose to run away from God, when you choose to shirk your responsibility, guess what? Your sin will affect others and affect others who have nothing to do with your responsibility. Jonah's behavior here caused difficulty for the sailors, right? So much so that they were crying out to God they feared for their lives. But very likely, there were other ships out there on the water had no clue why the storm was going on. It may have been doing the same thing. Now, we're not told that, but it would be kind of a logical deduction to say that was likely true. At this point, the sailors were simply afraid of the storm. But they were ignorant as to the reason behind the storm. So they, they have here, you might want to say, an ignorant... Fear. They don't have the complete picture yet. They were afraid, but they didn't know of who or what. All they could do was their best effort, cry out, empty all their goods, to fend for themselves. And there's something impressive about all that they're doing, at least to try and solve the problem in their own strength. Now, while the sailors are hard at work, on deck, we find the prophet of God, In the inside of the ship, what's the next word? Fast asleep. Not just asleep. Fast asleep. The question is why? Why would he be fast asleep? Could it be that he's tired from the journey? Well, he got up and he left quickly. Went down to Joppa. You know, gets on a boat. I think running from God is tiring. Possible. Could it be that he is so at peace because God was in all of this that he was just resting nice and gently down there in the midst of the storm? Could it be that his conscience is so seared that the storm doesn't even shake him? It's possible. I think, I think the last one is probably closer to the reality of what's going on here. I think his defiance is so settled that he feels that he's just kind of at peace. His conscience is seared and the storm is going. He's figured, all right, I did everything I can. I'm on this boat. Now I'm just going to rest because this boat's going to take me away from where God wants me to be. Now, we're not told specifically, so we want to be careful here. But what God does here is he sends a captain. Now, one thing you probably know about captains, if you've ever been on a ship before, unless it's the love boat, right? Um is that they are usually very, very soft-spoken and genteel in their ways, right? Right? Is that true? No, probably not. I mean, the captain is probably the one who screams the loudest. Well, he usually has like a, you know, some guy underneath him that does all the hard, you know, the rough work. But I'm sure that he was not kind of a soft-spoken guy. Notice verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? What is everyone doing at this point in time? They're throwing stuff overboard, and they're crying out to their gods. They're doing everything they can within their ability to solve the problem as best they can. And this knucklehead who's paid a fare is down in the boat, and he's sleeping away. Now, isn't it interesting that in passages like this that we recognize that our God has a great sense of humor? He uses the captain of the ship to wake Jonah up with some very pointed and symbolic questions. What do you think you're doing, you sleeper? I think the modern version of that would be, who died and made you God that you thought that you could go to sleep right now? And here's the really funny part. Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give you a thought to us that we may not perish. Can I please remind you of verse 2? What does God say to Jonah? Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and what? Call out against it. What does the captain say? Arise and call out to your God. See, God has an incredible sense of humor here. He uses a pagan captain to remind Jonah of the reason why he's there. Now The captain has no idea. But Jonah's listening to this and it's like, Okay, but you know what? Even that little bit does not affect him. It is so divinely ironic what takes place here. But friends, there's a a heart issue that also screams in this passage because he says here to Jonah, Arise, call out your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. But do we ever see in this story, chapter 1, Jonah crying out to God? Everyone else is crying out. Even when the captain comes down and says, you cry out, he doesn't. Think through this a little bit. The heart issue here is all about prayer. We see man's futile attempt to call out to his gods, and we see a man of God, a prophet of God, in stubborn defiance, unwilling to pray. And here's the point our sin left unchecked will shrivel up our prayer life. When we allow ourselves to be settled in our defiance of God, when we allow ourselves to harbor sin and to love it and to to not even be uh, sensitive to it anymore, it will have an effect on our intimacy with God and our prayer time with God and that devotion time with God. We must be careful. So they cast lots, we're told. They said to one another, verse 7, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And the lots like dice. Um, usually had two different colors on each of the sides. And if, if basically there were, there were, they, they threw them down, if there were two white ones, that meant yes. If there were two dark ones, it was no. And if you got a, a white and a dark, it meant throw it again. So it was a way to kind of discern... God's will, God's purposes in all of this, and um, Jonah won the sweepstakes. In fact, if this were happening right now, Rebecca would be showing up at his door with a big envelope saying, you have won a million dollars, Jonah, okay, and if you don't know Rebecca, she's actually with the kids right now, but she delivers mail, on TV even, okay, that's just a little side note, Um, but listen to Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Even in a pagan practice of casting a lot, God was revealing his purposes and working through that to identify that Jonah was the issue. Absolutely staggering, absolutely amazing. Once again, we see... That every detail of the story is enacted by the providence of God. God is on the prow, and he will get exactly what he wants in spite of Jonah's attitude. So we've seen there fearing the storm. Sailors are hard at work. Jonah is fast asleep. But now let's look at the next step, fearing the God of the storm. Because now when they've identified Jonah, they're also identifying him as the source of the problem. Their knowledge now begins to increase, right? It was. We don't know where this is coming from. There's just a storm. But now we're getting some window of understanding as to what's taking place. So, so they know it's Jonah and the reason, that he's the reason for their problems. And an inquisition is formed. Questions, questions, questions. Look at it. Verse 8. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon you. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? is your country, and what people are. I mean, it's boom, 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 boom. They're trying to figure out what's going on here because they want to get to the solution. So Jonah finally opens his big mouth and says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Now, don't read that this way. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This is not a statement affirming allegiance to the God of Israel. This is really a statement, a simple affiliation with Israel and the Hebrew God that the Hebrews worshipped. Remember, Jonah is still unrepentant. He's still in a state of defiance before God. So this is not a statement of his great faith. There's certainly some divine irony here. This is as if God was saying to Jonah, Jonah, you would not go and testify my grace to the pagans of Nineveh, so I'll just have you testify of my glory to the pagans on this ship. He's the God of heaven. He's the God of the land. He's the God of the sea. Now, there should be some encouragement here for us. Let's just pause and think about this. If God determined for us to serve him, get this, we will. And some of our friends or family want nothing to do with God, but if God wants them to come to him, guess what? They will. And our job isn't to manipulate that. Our job is to say, God, how can we be your vessels in that? And if it is your will, Lord, make it known. Sometimes we're too quick to manipulate things when we just need to let God do what he desires to do because you can't do something that he's not going to do. I remember a number of years ago, this is probably back in early 90s. I met a pastor from Scotland. His name was Barry Williams. He was from Glasgow. But he tells the story of his life as a teenager. He would hang around with your typical Glasgow thugs. And he, um, they would go out and they would you know, always be causing trouble and difficulty and just having fun and just picking on people, whatever. And one day, as they were out, they heard people singing in a church. So they looked at each other and said, hey, let's have some fun here. And so they all said, let's get some stones and throw them through the windows while they're singing. So they picked up stones, they started throwing them in. Can you imagine, you know, as we're singing here, stones are flying through the windows, right? They're just trying to interrupt and cause trouble. And so they did that. It's like, ah, isn't it great? You know? And then they said, you know what, that was so much fun. Let's, let's go inside and let's like interrupt what's going on. So they went inside and they sat in the back and they, they would laugh and people would, would be praying, and they would be laughing and mocking that, and then the pastor gets up and gives some announcements, and they would sing some more songs, and the whole time, the guys are just, they're just cutting up and just trying to cause difficulty and trouble, and then the pastor gets up to speak, and they, they continue to do this, and as, as he tells it, it's really, it's really interesting um, what, what God does in his life, because as the pastor is beginning to preach, These guys act up, and and this is what the pastor says, Young men, if you're going to carry on like that and disrupt our services, I'm going to ask you to leave. Otherwise, you're welcome to stay. And of course, the boys started to snicker and leave, but not Barry. Something that was said, something that was shared in that service, something about the prayers or what the pastor had said earlier had now come and grabbed a hold of him. The very young man that went there to cause trouble and to stir things up was being drawn in by the the creator of this universe. And So we don't always see all of the things that are going on. We don't understand exactly how God is at work in all of our lives. But God, if he determines for something to happen, it will happen. We just don't quite understand how it's going to happen. And that is his testimony. He says, this is how I came to know the Lord as my Savior. I went to defy, and God drew me in. It's a great story. It's a great reality, because that is true in our lives, too. Now, God moves in mysterious ways, doesn't he? can't always comprehend them. We can't always predict them. So at this point, the sailors have an ignorant faith, but they are now um, being given an informed faith. They know whom it is that should be the object of their fear. Verse 10, notice what it says. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said, What is this that you have done? For the men knew what he was, that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So for the sailors, their fear had ascended from ignorant fear to... Fear of the known. For Jonah, his stubborn defiance in his heart, which was personal, which was private, is now made public. They all know that he is defying the God of Israel and that he is the reason for this storm. Now I want you to pause here, and I want you to note the storm is still raging. I mean, so they're talking you know, like this. The whole time. I mean, it's, there are things happening on that boat, and they're coming to these conclusions, and all of a sudden, these, these sailors now have, have understood he is the problem. But they're also understanding now that if it is the God of uh, Jonah that is causing all this, then he is the God of this storm. He is the God of the land. he's the God of the sea. He is the God of heaven. So now verse 11. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. So having been informed, their fear ascends even further. For if the storm wasn't bad enough, God was now revealing his power even more by growing the harshness of the storm. Did you get that? It's getting worse. I mean, it was, it was awful back in... Verse 4, but now as we move along here, it's getting even worse than that. Now, not, even, uh, not with even more desperate, um, sorry, now with even more desperate, uh, they ask Jonah what to do. And, and, and so their, their faith, sorry, their fear is ascending. Jonah's stubborn defiance is descending further because notice what he says. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Why did God send the storm in the first place? Was it really just to punish Jonah? Was just to give him a bad day? Just to say, you know, you defy me. Is that it? For those that are listening, I just kicked, okay? Why? Why did he want Jonah to go to Nineveh and to preach judgment? Jonah knew why. Because when the message of judgment comes out, there's always the possibility of repentance. Why is God bringing calamity on Jonah? It's so that Jonah will stop and say, God, yes, you're right. Forgive me. I was wrong. I've been running against you. I've defied you. Please forgive me. I repent of my sins. Jonah doesn't do that. (laughs) He digs his heels in, and he says, you know what? This was a personal private thing that was going on, and I was heading to Tarshish. The storm comes up. Now you know about it, and guess what? I would rather die than do what God wants me to do. Would you say that's pretty defiant? Try and beat God through death? Wow, friends! God is not some celestial wimp that is imprisoned by your unwillingness to follow Him. He's not. Up, you know, God's not in heaven, looking down at Jonah and saying he's going to kill himself. That's not, oh man, I, I don't want, oh man, what am I going to do? Not at all. God knows exactly what he's doing. Now, how does God respond to us when we're, we're so defiant? Sometimes he, he'll leave us in our defiant state. R- write down Romans 1, 18 and following. In that passage, what are we told? That those people who were, who were now shaking their fist at God, that they knew about God, they weren't thankful, but they wanted to pursue their own sin The phrase used three times in that passage is God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up. Sometimes he just chooses to leave us in it and allow the consequences of leaving us in that disobedience and defiance to take its natural form. Guys, if if you're in that, you don't want to be there. Sometimes he'll force you to change. Sometimes he'll destroy your unwillingness to follow him. God is not tamed, Dale Davis says and your tiny free will is a house of cards up against God's sovereign and stubborn determination. Let me say that again. God is not tamed, and your tiny free will is a house of cards up against God's sovereign and stubborn, stubborn determination. So here are the sailors. They've feared the storm, and now they're fearing the god of the storm, They have an ignorant fear. It's grown to an informed fear. And here we have Jonah, who's stubbornly defiant. It's personal. It's public. And ultimately, it's present in the prospect of death. He is willing to die rather than honor God. It's pretty staggering. Two completely different perspectives. Two completely different um, ways in which people can respond to God's work of calamity in their lives let's notice the third thing then what i'm calling fearing the sovereign god of the storm so what do the pagan ungodly foul-mouthed sailors do when jonah tells them to throw him into the sea like the rugged pagan awful sailors that they are they start trying to row to shore right Risking their own lives in the midst of the storm. The storm that was getting worse because of his unrepentance. They are now rowing for safety. Jonah will do nothing to save them, but they will do everything to save him. And I say, okay, is this really a, you know, a contrast of pagans and believers? It's really, I mean, there, there is a contrast here. You, you're just shaking your head saying... What kind of example is he being as a follower of the God Yahweh? And these pagans have more compassion. They have more courtesy. They have more care for him. When he as a representative of God, should be having more care for them. And Sometimes, guys, in our sinfulness, in our rebellion, we can act and behave in ways that we are worse than the culture around us. Because we want what we want, and we don't care what God says. Now exhausted and in compassion, they speak to the God of Israel. This is after they've tried to row. And notice it says in verse 13, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. That's three times now in this passage. Third time. This is more and more and more. Okay? Verse 14. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord! <laughs> this is not kind of some kind of a general thing. This is O Lord, this is Yahweh. This is specific. Let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. There it is again. The God of Israel, the God of this, this world, the creator of this universe, does what he pleases. He will always do what he pleases. He is Lord. And he does what he pleases, verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. I don't think that was easy for them. And the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. From the fear of the sea to the fear of the God of the sea, who is still somewhat nebulous to them. Now, to the fear of the sovereign God of the sea, who is Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of heavens, the God of the sea, the God of the land. Certainly much more specific. And we're told here how they responded further. It says, not only did they fear this Lord, they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, there's great debate as to whether or not we have you know, true followers of the God of Israel. I mean, after the storm died down, did they go back to worshiping their own gods? We don't know. What we do know, though, is that what we have here is not a foxhole experience response to God. Now, get this. Their fear and their sacrifice and their vows take place after they have been inundated with the majesty and the might and the power of God of God they've seen it in details through the um, casting of lots and through Jonah's presence and his story they've seen it in generalities because of the storm increasing and increasing and increasing and as soon as they throw him into the water whoosh storm ceases So what does Jonah get for his stubborn defiance? For his unwillingness to go to a pagan nation and speak for God? Well, possibly the conversion of pagans. Pretty ironic, isn't it? Now some things I want us to conclude with here. This text is screaming at us to take a heart-penetrating question seriously. Is there a seed of stubborn defiance in your heart. A seed that you are not willing to repent of. Let me just give you some, some ideas. This is not an exhaustive list, but just think through this. Is there a habit that needs to be forsaken, but you're not willing to do it? Is there a lust that needs to be run from, but you just, you're holding on to it because you love it? Is there a resentment that needs to be crucified? Is there a bitterness that needs to be surrendered? Is there a greed that needs to be expunged? So they're just little things that get in the way. And we know with Jonah, there was this, 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 this prejudice toward this people that was behind this attitude and this behavior and this defiance. And are you willing to hold onto that one seed so tightly that it will cause so much calamity in your life? What command of God has brought to your heart, or that he has brought to your heart, are you unwilling to obey? Or maybe you're refusing to obey. Are you willing to go down the hard path of defiance and allow your sinful and stubborn pride to cause havoc in the lives of people you love and the people you don't even know? Turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13, if you would please. We're just going to look at this passage and then one more passage. You may be here today and you might say, you know, this is kind of a new experience for me and not typically, you know, someone who attends church and I'm not sure how I'm supposed to respond to this. Um, I want you to think through this a little bit with me. Because we had all these sailors in this story who knew nothing about the, the, the one true God, the God that. We worship the God who is this triune God who has breathed out the gospel through his son Jesus Christ, sent his son to a cross to die in our place. And by virtue of that death, our our sins are paid for if we put our faith and trust in him. And here in in this particular passage, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13, it says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There's a sense in which these sailors were far off. They were pagans. They were from, from far removed from, from the influence and the umbrella of this, this sovereign God who was worshipped by the people of Israel. But through this story and through these circumstances, this God was made known to them. And friend, By virtue of your being here today, this God of the universe, this one who is the the creator, the sustainer, the one who who sent his son is being made known to you. You are far off and you're being brought near. That is language in the Bible that tells us that we are far off. We were enemies. We were estranged. We were were, uh, away from God, but through Jesus Christ, we can come near and we can be a part of his family if we will simply put our faith and trust in him. And so God is in the business of drawing people to himself through a storm at sea or a storm in life. Through hardships and calamities, through disobedience of one of his children, God is always, always, always on display. And he may be right now revealing himself to you. Now in closing, I want us to look at another passage, Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. We need to take some time here and connect all this to our Savior, Jesus Christ. We have an incredible story of the unfaithful prophet. But here we have this incredible story of the one who was prophet, priest, and king. And he's on a boat with the disciples. Look at verse 35 and following. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. And leaving the crowd, they took with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking in over the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, what? Asleep. On the cushion. And they woke him and said, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He awoke and he rebuked the what? The wind. And said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. It's the exact same phraseology that describes how the sailors responded to what God was doing in the life of Jonah. And they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You see, One of the themes of Jonah is, Israel, your God is not simply a territorial God. He is the God of the world. He is your covenant God, but he is also available for those who are not part of Israel. There's a sense in which this is a missionary story, and it's going in to slap Israel you know, on each cheek to say, wake up and take your God to those who are pagans. Because they will respond to who God is. And friends, we have as our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of the sea. He is the Lord of the heavens. He is the Lord of creation. He is the one that says, peace be still, to a storm. But he's also the one that can say to you, friend, peace, be still. Lay your burdens on me. Take my yoke upon you. And you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is our great Savior. He is our great God. And he is worthy of Our sacrifice, our worship, and our adoration. Lord, help us today not to shy away from the implications, Lord, of this story. And certainly, Lord, there are more things that we could pull out of this text, but Lord, may we ultimately see that you are a great and glorious God who screams his majesty to us through all sorts of different ways Lord through storms through clouds through the sun through circumstances Lord but ultimately he wants to point us to his son Jesus Christ who went to a cross and by virtue of what he did there has given us who have put our faith and trust in him everlasting peace we're no longer enemies Lord with you We have been far off. We've been brought near, Lord. We've been brought into your families. Lord, help us today to grasp that reality, to apply that to our lives, Lord, because we who have been running, Lord, you are pursuing and you will not give up because you love us, you care for us, you discipline us, Lord, as a father would discipline his son with love and care and a right purpose. And Lord, there may be someone here today who is grappling, Lord, with you, is grappling with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I ask, Lord, that you would give them freedom, that your Holy Spirit would breathe afresh into their lives, Lord, and give them new life that only comes through you. May we praise you, may we adore you for who you are, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Ilya.